the uh, story is told of a man who became convinced that he was dead. His friend remonstrated with him, trying to convince him that he was very much alive, but he was unmoved. He was absolutely certain he was dead. Finally, the friend had an idea. Do dead people bleed? He said. Of course not, came the reply. Immediately, the friend produced a pin and stuck it in the deluded man's arm and blood oozed out. Then the friend stepped back with a look of triumph in his, in his eyes and sure enough, the man cried, I was wrong. Dead people do bleed. Actually seems ridiculous, but by and large, um, as we've been saying over the last uh, few weeks, our minds work like that. We all have what, what people today call a, a, a world view. We all have a set of beliefs about how the world works. Those may be uh, um, consciously worked out very clearly or they may have just been unconsciously absorbed. But uh, our worldview actually shapes what we think at quite a profound level. And they, they shape, it shapes how we absorb new information. We tend to ignore things that don't fit. We tend to force uh, all the information to fit into what we already believe. Like the dead man, we have a set of beliefs about the world that actually are much more solidly embedded than we might like to think. And um, uh, we force new information to fit the uh, beliefs we already have. Let me prove that to you. Just think to yourself for a moment, what does that say? Okay, hands up, who thinks that said, I love Paris in the springtime? Hands up, anyone who thinks it didn't say, I love Paris in the springtime? Two, three, four people out of the best, best part of a, of a hundred people. Does someone want to volunteer what it did actually say? Exactly. I love Paris in the, the springtime. Do you see that? But that's not a proper sentence. So our mind just immediately edited that so that it meant what we wanted it to mean. I love Paris in the springtime. You see, we have a certain set of expectations. In this case that I was going to put up on the, center, on, on the uh, overhead a, a coherent and familiar sentence and our mind actually blocks evidence to the contrary. Now that is a massive and actually often unseen barrier to the Christian gospel. The majority of people in Britain today actually don't, don't any longer have a Christian worldview. They process everything that they see and they hear through a different grid. And to make matters worse, actually, they think that they know what a basically Christian worldview is. So, um, uh, as in that, uh, that sentence, they sort of edit anything that comes in that contradicts um, that message about Christianity to fit their expectations. As Christians, actually, we often get deep, deeply frustrated that our friends 
just cannot see what we see. To be fair, actually, I have atheist friends who feel similarly frustrated with me. From a Christian point of view, then, we must face up to a very big challenge. If the message of Jesus Christ is really going to reach new people, it is going to have to get over a massive, largely unseen barrier. Our minds don't easily shift from one worldview to another. That was the challenge that, uh, that faced the Apostle Paul in Athens. We, la- we saw last week how he arrived in, in Athens. He was immediately misunderstood by this uh, group of Stoic and Epicurean uh, philosophers who loved debating at the Areopagus. He was accused of being a babbler, someone who didn't have a coherent understanding of the world. And uh, they convinced themselves that he was preaching about foreign gods because they filtered what they heard about Jesus and the resurrection through their polytheistic lens. (coughs) So Jesus and the resurrection were clearly, obviously, two gods from some foreign land. How's Paul going to deal with that? How's he going to get over this barrier of uh, misunderstanding? How's he going to break down that barrier? I want to show, show you this morning that as he speaks to these people, he tells them basically three things. The first thing um, he says is that uh, actually God can be known. God has made himself known. Verse 22. Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. Paul's observed in this city, you see, that they're very interested in spiritual matters, as um, frankly if you walked around East Oxford you would conclude. And some honest and religious Athenians had obviously become so concerned that there may be uh, at least one God that they knew nothing about that they decided to dedicate an altar to an unknown God. Paul declares to them, now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. Just the sort of thing that actually infuriates people who are not Christians. This is surely a a prime example of what one friend of mine um, calls the arrogance of faith. Of course, Christians actually can sometimes be arrogant, just like everyone else, but I don't think Paul is being arrogant here. Because you see, he's not boasting about his own abilities. He may be heard as being arrogant, as boasting about his own abilities, because most people think that you find out about uh, God or the gods by, by, by searching for him ourselves. Therefore people who, who, who think in those terms may well think that someone who speaks with the confidence that, God, that, that Paul speaks with is being deeply arrogant claiming that he has got further than everyone else. But it's not that he's got further. It's actually that God has stepped into his life. 
Read the story of uh, uh, of Paul's life, and you will find there was a time when he was very self confidently going around, thinking he knew what God was like, and he had to be humbled as God met him face to face. Paul's telling them that God wants to be known. God wants to reveal himself. God has revealed himself. In the pages of this book, the Bible, in the person of Jesus Christ, it's not arrogant to say that. Because God is taking the initiative. God is showing us who he is. Many many people think that um, agnosticism is the most humble path for a sincere uh, searcher. I have to say, surely it's not humble to ignore the very evidence that God has laid down for us. I never cease to be amazed at um, uh, the number of my agnostic friends who've never even read a single gospel from end to end. Reminds me of the story of the philosophers, uh, ancient philosophers, who set themselves the task of finding out how many teeth were in a horse's mouth. And after many days of vigorous debate, a young uh, student stood up and suggested that they should go out and find a horse and look in its mouth. Of course, they beat him soundly for his impudence. They'd much rather leave the matter unresolved than stoop to such a crude solution. Stoic and Epicurean philosophers were very much in that tradition. You see, Paul says um, that agnosticism is not necessarily the best way. God has revealed himself. Second thing he says to them, though, is that uh, God is a lot closer to them, to this world, than they might think. Remember, um, uh, these philosophers had, uh, had concluded that Paul was preaching foreign God, something foreign to them. And, and Paul is going to spend a lot of energy in trying to persuade them that actually the God he is speaking about is not as foreign as they might think. For instance, uh, despite the number of altars and uh, temples in Athens, all of these philosophers, Stoics and Epicureans, were quite clear that the gods did not reside in those temples. And Paul says, I agree with you. The Bible agrees with you. The God, verse 24, who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples built by hands. The Epicureans actually in many ways anticipated modern um, non-spiritual understandings of the world. They believed that there was no spiritual dimension at all. All there was was matter. They're actually the people who came up with the idea that the world was made of atoms. And uh, the gods too were made of atoms living far, far away from the earth in, uh, in distant tranquility. You could uh, worship them in a temple if you like, but they weren't there. They were having a good time millions of miles away. The Stoics, on the other hand, actually anticipated some, uh, some of our modern Eastern mystical beliefs. They were, they were essentially pantheists. They believed that uh, uh, 
that, that uh, um, the gods uh, were in fact just the, the spiritual dimension of the world. They were a sort of world's soul. The Stoics were actually particularly critical of crude temple worship because they believed it was through a disciplined life that we achieved union with the world soul. Paul says, I agree with you both. God does not dwell in temples. But not because he's a distant, uninvolved God of the Epicureans or the, or the world soul of the Stoic. No, the God of the Bible is far grander than either of these things. He is the personal creator of the whole universe. He made the world, says Paul. He is the personal sustainer and ruler of the whole universe. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. They were right in their slightly disdainful um, uh, attitude towards crude temple worship, but they needed a far grander, larger vision of God than they actually have. They're close as well to the God of the Bible in their, in their beliefs about serving God. Verse 25. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Both of these groups of philosophers were, were sceptical about crude efforts to, to serve God too. The Epicureans' gods didn't need serving. They were, they were entirely happy away from the world. They needed nothing. The Stoics' world soul god didn't need serving. Either you became united with that god through, through uh, personal discipline. You didn't serve him. Well, says Paul, the god of the Bible doesn't need serving. You're absolutely right. He doesn't need anything. But once again, Paul, Paul draws them to a grander, bigger view of God. He says, he is actually the personal God who doesn't need serving because he serves us. He gives all people, says Paul, life and breath and everything else. Our life is his gift to us. Our breath is his gift to us. Everything we have is his gift to us. As he says in, a, in a, one of the Psalms, the cattle on a thousand hills are his. So why think about serving him? Extraordinary thing about the Christian God is that he loves serving us and giving to us. And all he asks of us is that we receive it. At the end of the 19th century, a young man called Gilbert Chesterton was studying in the Slade School in London and he was immersed in the uh, cynical, atheistic, pessimistic world of the artists of that era. But he couldn't find it in his heart to become totally devoted to that world. He was restrained by what he later described as a thin thread of thanks, a mystical minimum of gratitude, an instinct that life is a gift. That instinct led G.K. Chesterton to become a Christian. 
because of the God of the Bible loves to give. The God of the Bible fulfills that instinct we have to give thanks. I mean, we just celebrated God's gift of life to Eliza, didn't we? You cannot see a life like that and not somewhere in your heart want to say thank you. Dante Gabriel Rossetti said, uh, said once, the, the biggest problem an atheist has is that when he wants to give thanks, he has no one to thank. That instinct is an instinct for the true God. He is not served, says Paul. He serves. These uh, Stoic and Epicureans as well were, were very close in their, uh, to, to the God of the Bible in their beliefs about mankind. Most of the religious teachings of their, of their day were about local gods for local people in local areas. But these two groups of teachers were self-consciously trying to work out a, a universal religion for all people which described the universe. The Stoics especially were, were, spoke often about the universal brotherhood of all mankind. Paul agrees with them. The true God, he says, is the God of all peoples. Look at verse 26. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole world. And he determined the time set for them, the exact places where they should live. According to the Bible, we have one pair of ancestors, all races, Adam and Eve. All the nations are part of God's great plan to inhabit the whole earth. God rules over every nation, determining when they rise and when they fall. The exact location of their territory is determined by him. And God rules over all mankind for one universal overarching purpose. Verse 27. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. That's God's great plan for this universal brotherhood that they should all find him. We, we tend to think of Christianity very often as a local western faith, don't we? It's never been so clear as it is today how false that is. Today, Christianity in China is, is exploding. Almost certainly there are more Christians in China than there are people in Britain. Perhaps over a hundred million Christians in China. Despite the fact that China is the uh, third worst persecutor of Christians in the world. Today, Christianity in, in Africa is growing and confident. Christianity in South America is breaking free of its traditional shackles and, and coming alive in country after country. Ever we wanted evidence that God oversees all nations so that people from every nation would perhaps reach out to him. We're seeing it today. Perhaps we think Christianity uh, is the faith of a, of a bygone era in Europe 
Well, God is working in this country as well. God is raising up in the 21st century new generation here as well. He is not far, says Paul, from each one of us. This universal vision that the that uh, the Stoics and the Epicureans had then of all mankind together in a brotherhood was being realised is being realised in God's church. Paul even quotes a traditional saying and a, and a pagan poet to show them that uh, some of the insights that they have are not that far from what he is proclaiming to them. Verse 28, In him we live and move and have our being, he says. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Paul is wanting to say to them at every point, your understanding of the world has real connections with what the Bible says. But it is grander, bigger, more satisfying when you see what the Bible really says. And we could add any number of examples, couldn't we, to uh, 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 today, to the, the, the closeness of Christianity to uh, uh, 21st century people. Some people devote their lives to, uh, to green issues. The Bible would massively endorse such care for the world. After all, the Bible describes God's original creation as a garden. And, give, and gives mankind the responsibility to care for it. Describes mankind's rebellion as a curse that comes over the whole earth. It describes God's great plan for the whole of his universe to remove that curse and make his new heaven a new earth. And uh, it describes the present state of the world in terms, um, in very interesting terms. In, for instance, Hosea chapter 4. Uh, Hosea says, There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. Because of this the land mourns. All who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea are dying. Could it be for our environmentalist friends that what they need to see is that the ultimate problem with our world is that there is no acknowledgement of God in the land. The Bible certainly endorses caring for the world. Or what about people who devote their lives to interracial harmony? How the Bible would applaud that, because that's God's great vision for his church. That's God's great vision for eternity. That is God's great plan. What about people who devote their lives to fighting for the underdogs? Who better to follow than Jesus Christ who stood up to religious and secular authorities and cared for children and lepers and the insane? Uh, as I look around me, you see, at, 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 at people that I know, friends that I have who are not yet Christians, I think to myself again and again, if only they could see that what they are striving for, what they are devoting their lives to, their highest good ideals, 
are actually uh, endorsed by the Bible but put into a much bigger, grander perspective. Some of us are, are Christians here this morning. It is our great task, you see, to break down that barrier. To help people who, who, who misread the sentence when it, when, it, when, it, when it is put up about Christianity. To read the sentence accurately. To read what God really says. To show them, actually, it's a lot closer to what they're longing for and needing than they ever thought. Some of us perhaps aren't Christians yet here. We need to humbly recognise that we filter, we distort. It's very, very difficult and takes hard work for us to really say, hear what the Bible says. When we do hear it, we might get a surprise. God is a lot closer to this world than we might realise. Third thing, though, verses 29 to 34, that the Apostle um, speaks of, equally clearly is that God does confront his world he's close to it wanting people to reach out to him but he does confront us Paul's worked enormously hard to stay on side with these uh, philosophers but he doesn't do it at all costs verse 30 in the past God looked, overlooked such ignorance but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. God requires action from these philosophers. Now that they know about him, they must turn to him. God will judge the whole world, says Paul. And the central figure is that unnamed man in verse 31, Jesus Christ. The great marker in history that this is true is that God raised him from the dead. See, neither the Stoics nor the, nor the Epicureans believed at all in resurrection. The Epicureans believed, because they didn't believe in any spiritual dimension, that when you died, that was that. There was a very common epitaph they had on, on, their, um, on their graves. I was not, I was, I am not, I don't care. In fact, it was so, so uh, commonly, um, commonly repeated that they sometimes just reduced it to the uh, Latin initial letters of those different phrases. 
That was what they believed. The Stoics believed that uh, your soul lived on, but there was no future physical bodily existence, it was just an eternal soul. The scandalous claim of Christians is that we are destined for physical, eternal life. Life in a body is much too fun for God actually to only give us some sort of emaciated spiritual eternal existence. God made life in a body enjoyable, an essential part of what we understand as life, because he intended to give us eternal life in a body. And he proved it on that first Easter morning when they found an empty tomb and saw a risen Saviour, Jesus. It's the extraordinary claim of Christianity that God will recreate the whole of his creation and recreate us physically. But before we can populate his new creation, he asks us one question. Did you really want to know me? I gave you enough evidence that you could respond. Did you really want to know me? One of the frightening truths about uh, judgment is that God gives us what we want. If our answer is, no, frankly, I didn't really want to know you. And he says, so be it. That is your eternal future. God does confront his world and not surprisingly there is a mixed response verse 32 when they heard about the resurrection of the dead some of them sneered others said we want to hear you again on this subject that time at that Paul left the council few men became followers of Paul and believed among them was Dionysius a member of the Areopagus also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. When people really start to hear what the Bible teaches, there will always be that threefold reaction. Some will sneer. It heightens the hostility of some people to the true God. We must be prepared for that. Some people will say, this is taking some time to sink in. That's fine. It takes uh, um, more than just uh, one sermon on the Areopagus for, for, for many, many, many people. That is fine. Though Luke may actually uh, put in a little, um, a little warning there when he, he uh, tells them that Paul left the council at that point and there's no indication he ever went back. 
It's possible to prevaricate for too long. And some, just some, will say, yes, I see now. This is actually what I've been looking for. This actually makes sense of the world. I've actually, I've actually not reprocessed everything that uh, I've heard to fit into where I'm at. But I've allowed this new information to change what I believe. A few became followers. That's the reality that faces any church, any group of Christians. That's the reality that uh, faces us all. Those are the essential truths the Apostle Paul wanted to teach to those people. And that is a reaction that has been repeated again and again and again. Question then for us. Is as I am I going to be a follower of Paul? Or am I going to be someone who sneers?